My name is Jason Zastrow. Uh, I serve on staff here at Apex, uh, helping oversee our house churches and our leadership development. And uh, I just want to welcome you again to Apex. Um, I, I don't know about you, uh, but we've all been going through this year known as 2020, uh, and it's been a, a little bit rough. Um, I'm looking at my, my friend back there that I know just kind of recovered from COVID. Uh, and, and it's been something that we've all been, been struggling through. And, and I'm not sure about you, there have been times in the midst of the highs and the lows in which, uh, I don't know how else other than to say it, than just fighting for joy. Just attempting to make sense of this world that we're in and struggling to just recover a sense of semblance and, and a sense of just understanding of, of who God is and who I am and, and how we're out to, to live in this world. Over the course of the last few weeks, uh, a few weeks ago, Mike shared about how we live in a culture of blessing, uh, where we're always giving and receiving. And, and this past week, uh, we heard from Mike as he shared about a, a culture of comfort in which we have the, the, the God of the universe, the paraclete, the spirit dwelling in us, uh, always there to remind us of our, our union with God, uh, with Jesus, uh, and with him, the spirit. This week, we're going to look at what does it look like to have a, a culture of joy? How is it that we uh, have a, a constant culture of joy as, a, as opposed to a fleeting experience of happiness that is defined by the situations that we might find ourselves? How is it that we constantly live out in a place of joy regardless of the situations uh, that we face? So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 7. If you would remember last week, we looked at first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the same letter uh, in which Paul was wrestling with uh, the Corinthians about the various situations and trials that they were facing, that, that he was facing. And we see the stream of joy uh, that runs through it. So this is how God's word reads. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came to Macedonia, the body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told me about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Let's read. I mean, let's pray. Father God, just as we are encountered uh, by you through your word, uh, may your spirit teach us uh, to be more like Jesus. Uh, we thank you for a gift of joy. Uh, Lord, may you remind us that our location and relation with you uh, is what brings joy to our situation. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so we're going to do a, a quick little uh, r- kind of repeat type thing. So I know we're all kind of coming off of a, a Christmas weekend. A lot of us might be tired. Either we were hosting a bunch of people or we were uh, kind of like me, a little bit more by ourselves. And so you got to sleep in a little bit more. So you're, you're a little bit more tired from sleeping in. Uh, but there at the end of my prayer, I said a little phrase that is going to kind of be replete and, and said many times throughout this morning's this sermon. It's, it's our location and our, our, our relation bring joy to our situation. Our location and our relation bring joy to our situation. So I definitely need our kids to help out on this. I'm going to first say location and then you say location. I'm going to say relation and then you say relation. I'm going to say situation and then you say situation, all right? I want you to shout as loud as you can, all right? Say location. All right? Say relation. 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 And say situation. Situation. All right. This time you just shout those three words with, I'm not going to say it this time. You guys, you guys think you can do that? Are you ready? Okay. I'm going to give you a hint. It's location, relation, and situation. I know. Huge, like, fourth grade words there. All right. Let's say it. Location. Location. Ready? The next one. Relation and situation. All right. So for those of us who are adults in the room and we don't like shouting, what I would rather you do is so politely turn to your neighbor and say, repeat after me, our location and our relation bring joy to our situation. Our location and our relation bring joy to our situation. Our location and our relation bring joy to our situation. You know, we often live in a backwards world, and and what that means is instead of letting our relationship with God and and our identity in Him be what defines the world around us and, and our perspective of it, so often what happens is the things that are happening to us end up defining who we are and end up we projecting that upon the character of God. And that little ditty, that little rhyme, I think is really helpful for us to remind ourselves of of the proper order, the proper economy, that it is our location with Christ in the heavenly places, seated with him next to the Father. It is our relationship with Christ by his Spirit as his Spirit dwells within us that then gives joy to any situation that we face. In our passage today, we are looking at Paul. Let's give a little bit of background here with Paul. Um, as you guys know, uh, Paul uh, was, um, in, within his Hebraic context, was known as Saul. Uh, he was a Pharisee. Uh, he was a Jew of Jews, as he would describe himself, studied underneath the best, uh, and was so ardent for the cause of, of him and, and his Jewish uh, brothers and sisters within Phariseeism uh, that when the news of this coming Christ uh, c- came and, and spread, and, and, and the news of the resurrection especially, uh, he looked on with a sense of glib, a sense of happiness, uh, when the first martyrdom of a Christian took place by the guy named Stephen. And in, in Acts chapter 7 and in, in the beginning of 8, when we look at that story of Stephen, he is looking up to the skies. His heart 
full of joy as those around him pick up rocks to stone him. What was it about Stephen that gave him so much joy? He found himself caught up within the story of God. In fact, he tells that story from the time of Abram and and through David and and, and the others and, and ultimately in Christ that he was now participating in. He was caught up in something much bigger than himself. Paul himself ended up getting caught up in this same story, the story of life, the story of Jesus. On his road to Damascus uh, journey, he ended up getting a vision of Christ. And and very clearly in the text, we see that he had these scales on his eyes and, and that he was told to rest for several days. And eventually the scales fell off his eyes and he could see God in a way he had never seen before. Most likely Paul went off to a desert, uh, kind of off to his own land. Maybe he went back home. And he just began engaging in the scriptures again, looking at it through the lens of this resurrected son of God named Jesus. He was so overwhelmed by the power and the presence of God in his life that he went out with, with all authority and humility and preached the good news to the Gentiles. And it was on his first, second missionary journey, uh, excuse me, that he went to a town after a very specific call, the Macedonian call, to to take the good news for the first time into Europe. Uh, And he went all the way down and over, uh, through, kind of along the Aegean Sea until he he got to a little, not a little town, a big trading town called Corinth. Uh, 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 next to a little isthmus, which is just a tiny little sliver of land connecting two larger pieces of land with water on either side. Because of this, Corinth was a very wealthy community, uh, a type of community that had all sorts of things that would happen within an urban life that would very much get caught up in, in the ways of the world. And so when the good news began to take place in this town, it would make sense that the people there would continue to struggle with the reality of Jesus as king and and what that meant for them and how they ought to live their lives. And, And so because of that, he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians church. One of my favorite passages in 1 Corinthians is found in 1 Corinthians 6, in which he names all of these various vices. And he says, do you not know that neither this kind of person nor that kind of person, he ends up describing these various expressions of sin, will inherit the kingdom of God? He goes on, he says, as were such some of you, as such were some of you, but you have been washed, you've been cleansed, you have been redeemed and made alive again by the Spirit of God. What Paul says in that passage is he's not identifying the sin with the, with the sinner. He is saying, no, you have been washed, you have been cleansed, you have been sanctified. And, and that's really good news for me because that means that God, when he looks at me, he sees a son in his, son, in his own son. He sees someone filled by his spirit. And that gives me a continual hope that that is how the Father sees me. But in Paul's missionary journeys, he has to move on to the next town. And so there is a renewed sense 
of who God is, but there's still kind of like some wariness. And Paul has some enemies. And so these enemies go around literally kind of like after each city Paul visits. And they end up preaching that Jesus really isn't the Christ, that he really didn't say raised from the dead. Uh, They end up preaching another gospel. And it's that, that, that situation that you have these baby Christians who come to know who Jesus is, but they're still kind of wrestling with their identity and they're still wrestling with these, these like persecutors, these false teachers. That's the situation that Paul writes the letter of 2 Corinthians in. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of different voices telling me who I am, how I ought to be, how I ought to live. There's a lot of different voices telling me what to think about, about who God is and who Christ is and things that, rem- that rob me of remembering my experiences, my, my personal understandings of God as, as seen in his revelation to me. And often when I forget those things, this joy seems to wane. When I forget who I am and whose I am and where I am, I can sometimes feel like this joy has been robbed. But that's what Paul is speaking against. Paul is saying our joy isn't robbed because who we are isn't robbed. Whose we are isn't robbed. While we may forget it, it doesn't mean that it's, it's not real anymore. And in fact, he would go on to say, and I think you see this here in the text, that it's actually when we encounter various kinds of suffering and trials that we can count it as joy. Again, he says, in all our trouble, my joy knows no bounds. Your deep sorrow and your ardent concern for me so that my joy was greater than ever. Our location And our relation bring joy to our situation. So what is our location? Our location simply is in Christ. For those of us who follow Jesus, by his spirit, we've been placed in Christ. A few weeks ago, I preached on... uh, a passage in Luke, and went back to Ephesians chapter 2. And if you were to remember there in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we have been raised with Christ. We have been saved, and we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So that we are seated with him right now. Use your mind's eye to picture that. You, with Christ, seated in the heavenly places. Not only that, our relation. In John chapter 17, we see this amazing prayer. I'm just going to flip over to that right now. It's Jesus' prayer uh, for his disciples in the garden. And there's a lot of ins and withs, but this is his prayer in regards to our relationship with him and the Father and the Spirit for all believers. My prayer is not only for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, 
Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now get this, I have given them the glory that you gave to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Our relationship with the Father is so united because of our relationship with the Son. Because we are in the Son by faith, the same love that the Father loved the Son with, the Son has loved us with now. So what is our location? Our location is in Christ, with him in the heavenlies. What is our relation? The same love that the Father loved the Son with, the Son has loved us with. So then what is our situation? Our situation is 2020. Our situation is people not liking us. Our situation is past traumas and hurts that still creep their way back into random expressions throughout the day that seem to come out of nowhere. Perhaps our our situation is a job that we're struggling with or a family and relationships within our family that we all wish could be a little bit better. Our location and our relation bring joy to our situation. When we look at David, for example, I think we see this all over the place, especially in the the younger parts of his life and his ministry. King David, you know, the guy who uh, beat Goliath with a few stones. Well, as Saul, the king of the time, before David was enthroned, he was jealous. And so he chased him all throughout the land. And, And David would also often hide in caves and caverns just to escape. And some of David's most beautiful psalms were inspired by this time. Have you ever noticed that in the psalms, there seems to be two major themes even? There seems to be a location, which is often pictured as God's kingdom displayed through Jerusalem. And sometimes even David would imagine himself or have an experience of a revelation from God being in his throne room. Or it's his relation with God as a son, as a loved one, maybe a sheep who's been lost. Because that location and, and that relation brought joy to David's situation. When we look at the early disciples, as we get into the book of Acts especially, we're going to see them run away uh, from being let out of jail. And they're excited and they're jumping up and down with joy because they thought it was awesome to be counted worthy to suffer just like Christ did. How is it that they could run away from jail and be joyful? Because they remember their location in Christ, their relation, his brothers, his, his sisters, his friends. And their situation, so they can sit in jail and sing hymns and be excited. 
or Paul himself in this own letter. He is being chased, basically, by these false teachers. There's a situation that's in play in Corinth where he's not even sure whether or not these people that he's been loving love Jesus. But then when he finds out that they love him too, he rejoices together with them because they now share the same location and the same relation. Why is it that they live this way? Because this is how Jesus taught them to live. In John chapter 15, right after we talk about what it means to abide, Jesus talks about his joy. He says, after this famous passage on the vine and the branches, as my father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in me. Location. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I love even a little bit more in the nuances of the text of the Greek. It says, so that your joy may be brought to completion. It's this idea that it's not just, it is already and not yet is our joy. It's something that's continually growing and yet something that we always have access to. Joy in the Christian life is kind of like us, if I have a brother or sister here, and we're sharing what we're going through, and our joy is made more and more complete, I'm like, hey, this is really great. What do you think? And that brings a little bit more completion to their their joy. And then they share back with me what God's doing in their life, and that brings a little bit more completion to my joy. So it's not just something that we already have fully. It is also something that is continually growing in Christ. And then he goes on in chapter 16, and he again talks about his joy. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name until you have not asked for anything in my name, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. What is the best thing to ask the Father for? Him. That's the best thing. To be with Him where He is. That's the best thing. Our location and our relation bring joy to any situation. All right, so that's a lot of like airy, iffy, pithy, kind of like ethereal kind of stuff. What does this look like in real life? Well, all of us know what this looks like in real life because of 2020, but I want to share with you a story of a friend of mine, a guy named Tim. Tim is one of our house church shepherds, and um, Tim's in marketing, and uh, very early on, he's in one of the leadership huddles that that I'm a part of, and and very early on as the pandemic began to take place, uh, he could see the other people in marketing uh, slowly lose their jobs. Um, one of the things that he said that I remember is usually in marketing, uh, usually in, in sales and, and things like that, marketing is the very first thing to go. 
And so he could see his other uh, people, his coworkers lose their jobs. And he was very, very concerned, obviously, about losing his. And in our huddle, we would spend time praying for Tim, uh, praying for Jenna, uh, praying for their family, praying for the Lord's provision for them. Uh, But sure enough, there was one day in which Tim joined a call and he let us know that he lost his job. What happened next was something that very deeply encouraged me, where his joy brought joy to to my joy. Tim was very ardent about maintaining a, a predictable pattern of spending time with God. So he would go nearly every day to Starbucks, and he would read scripture, and and he would journal, and and he would pray. Because he knew that if he wasn't doing those things, if he wasn't having a predictable pattern of reminding himself of his location in Christ and his relationship with the Father, that he could end up forgetting his joy and not facing his situation in a way that brought Christ to that situation. And so, so Tim and I would actually get together, and, 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 and as he was pursuing leads, and, and as he was trying to create his own business uh, out, of, out of kind of nothing in the midst of COVID, the one thing that Tim always had was joy. Sure, he had frustration. Sure, he had grief. But joy is deeper than those emotions, Joy is rooted in something that is not fleeting. Joy isn't defined by our situation. Joy defines our situation. Joy helps us to see the challenge that we face as an opportunity to represent and present Christ in the world. Because of our location and relationship with God, the challenges that we face are no longer challenges. They're wrapped up in the cross of Jesus. Instead, the challenge is now to live out like Jesus in the midst of those situations. That's our true challenge. Just like the author of Hebrews reflects on Jesus' life in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He, he counted it all joy to, to go to the cross and present the love of the Father to the world. The reason Jesus was able to do that was because of his rootedness in the Father. The reason that the disciples were able to face various types of suffering and trials was because of their rootedness in Jesus. And the reason that we are able to do that now is the same reason they were able to do that then. Because our location and our relation never change. I want you to take a moment and I want you to think through this past year. It's been a big one. It's been like a decade. 
Think through this past year, and I want you to identify it, even in your mind's eye, what was the highest high? And what was the lowest low? What was your highest high of 2020? And what was your lowest low? If it's helpful, grab a, a pen, paper, if you're at home, or, or your notes app on your phone, and write those down. What was your highest high of this year? And what was your lowest low? Now, you might look at that highest high and your lowest low and be like, there's nothing joyful about especially this lowest low. Or the highest high you might find is defined by the situation as opposed to the location and the relation. This is the joy of repentance. The joy is repentance, simply meaning to, to rethink things, means that we can now take this back to God and we can say, Lord, in the midst of this highest high and in the midst of this lowest low, show me where I was with you and where you were with me. Show me how you have sh shown yourself in ways that you have never shown before. Maybe, maybe they're still hidden and I need my eyes open to them. Because before, I thought it was just a situation. And I forgot my location and my relation. And as we enter into this next year, that's why it's important, as we talked about in Apex Delivers, that we begin with abiding. Abiding is simply remembering our location and our relation. Our location with Christ and our relationship with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And that will bring joy to every situation. There was a, uh, an, an old missionary, and when I say old, I'm talking about 300s, by a guy named Patrick. Patrick was born uh, amongst the Celtic Britons, and uh, his father was a deacon or something like that. Uh, they were a Romanized family, uh, meaning that they kind of lost a lot of their traditions of, as Celts when the Romans came in and brought uh, Christianity. Patrick really rejected the faith of his mom and his dad. And at the age of 16, he was captured. He was captured by the Celtic Irish, the Irish Celts. And he spent six years in servitude and slavery with them. Six years of suffering. It was during that time that the gospel came alive to him. And his anger and his hatred towards those who captured him turned into mercy and love and forgiveness. Patrick eventually escaped around the age of 22, and he felt a calling from the Lord to take the good news of Jesus back to his captors, but in a way that was natural to them 
in a way that was in their language and in their culture. And St. Patrick, as we often call him now today, because of, of, of the relationship that he engaged with them in, in this suffering and loving way, uh, brought the good news and, 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 and converted uh, the whole land of Ireland. He has a prayer, though, that some of us may know or may not know, but I think it's very fitting for us as we close our time uh, together. And let me just pray St. Patrick's prayer over you this morning. Christ, shield me today against any wounding. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. I arise today through the mighty strength of the Lord of creation. Amen.